You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. We're going to look at some very important words because we as Christians believe that the Bible is God's word. It's God's word to his people. And that means that when we read the Bible, we're hearing God speak. So let's listen to the words from a biography of Jesus in Luke, the biography written by Luke. We're looking at chapter 15, and I'm going to begin at verse 11. Jesus also said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. And so he distributed the assets among them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had. He travelled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he spent everything, a severe famine struck that country, and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? But I'm here dying of hunger. I'll get up, go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Please make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and he went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. The son said to the father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told the servants, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. Let's celebrate with a feast because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants, questioning what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told him. 
and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, Look, I have been slaving many years for you. I've never disobeyed your orders, yet you never even gave me a goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who's devoured your assets with prostitutes, you've slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Son, he said to him, you're always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead, and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Well, good morning. My name is Dan, and it's a huge privilege to have come all the way from sunny Brisbane all the way down here to my hometown, Melbourne, to be with you this morning. Uh, I'm a good friend of the church here at Cross and Crown and many of the people within it. And what I want to do this morning, particularly if you're new to Christianity and been brought along by a friend, is to help answer one big question. What is God like? Because many of us have a sense that we know what this whole religion game is about. We know what God is like. And Jesus was in the habit of revealing to us exactly what God is like, of answering that question so different than anyone anticipated, of challenging our prevailing assumptions. Jesus was a master storyteller. He told these parables where he cast spiritual truth alongside a very this-worldly story to be able to anchor it and explain it in a way that makes sense. And today we pick up in Luke 15, one of the biographies of Jesus, a trinity of stories, three back-to-back parables that help really get to the heartbeat of what God is like, and maybe to even act as something of a microcosm of the whole Christian story as to what this Christianity thing is all about. One of my favorite scholars of the Bible is a man named Kenneth Bailey. He was a Western guy, but spent all of his teaching career in the Middle East, studying ancient scripts in Syriac and Coptic and Arabic, many of the original interpreters and readers of the Bible and non-Western traditions and, and languages. He spent time around traditional Middle Eastern villages and cultures that are much closer to the worldview of the group that Jesus is speaking to 2,000 years ago than you or I so far removed in time and place and language. And he gives some unique insights on how the original hearers would have understood Jesus' story as he's telling it. And I want to share it with you this morning, breaking this down into four key scenes, starting with scene one, the death wish. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons, and the youngest son said to his father, father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now, if you're anything like me reading this story, it doesn't seem that shocking to suburban Australia. After all, the baby boomers, our parents' generation, let's be honest, they've got something to spare given the economic prosperity of their period of time. It's entirely natural for our parents to share the love, to help us get 
a deposit down on a house, to be able to start making our world with financial investments. Surely that's exactly what a loving parent would do. It doesn't seem that outlandish. And yet to the ancient world, if this story was told in a Jewish village in the time of Jesus, you would have heard an audible gasp from the audience. You see, for first century Jews, the way that inheritance worked was kind of like the way we would set up a trust today. The sons had the right of possession ever since their birth. It's technically theirs, what their father has, but they can't touch it yet until it's matured. But unlike turning 18 when you can get access to your trust fund, the way the Jewish inheritance worked is you only got to spend, to use, to do what you want with this inheritance once your dad was in the ground. So for a son to come to his father and point blank say, give it to me now, it's the sort of request that had one glaring message. It's effectively a death wish. It was a form of familial mutiny to the son basically wishing his father was gone out of the picture. Because for some reason in the prodigal son's mind, his home Like the story we heard this morning, it felt more like a prison. It was kind of like being straitjacketed, unsure of whether this life was what you wanted to live. The father was perhaps holding him back from everything that this world had to offer. And millions of people have this view of God. That God is like some sort of cosmic killjoy. That religion is all about imposing these arbitrary laws and restrictions and rules that at best are a buzzkill and at worst are some kind of totalitarian overreach on our personal freedom. We don't like really being accountable to someone else. We don't like being told what to do. Now this particular quote is a little bit dated, but coming from one of the most renowned philosophers of mine today, Thomas Nagel, over at the University of New York. An incredible, skeptical mind, non-believer in God. But in his book, The Last Word, back in the early 2000s, he gave this stunning admission when it comes to the question of God. He said, and I quote, I want atheism to be true. And I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. And my guess is this cosmic authority problem is not a rare condition and that it's responsible for much of the scientism and the reductionism of our time. End quote. Now, I could cite many more examples of Aldous Huxley and key figures in literature and science communication. Examples for whom atheism has become something of a psychological crutch for those who demand freedom from moral restraint. And the cosmic authority problem, to borrow Thomas Nagel's words, is something you can actually trace all the way back in the Christian story to the pages of Genesis chapter 3, where our first parents, Adam and Eve, were tempted to doubt the character of God, that his intentions really were for us, for our best. So that rather than trusting their heavenly father to divine the boundaries of good and evil, to be the cosmic moral lawgiver, whose laws we can trust to lead to our freedom and our flourishing in our life, instead, they decide to take their life into their own hands. They believed that everything would be better 
If they could define their life on their own terms. They thought they could be good without God. And so in the story, the son looks at his home and he looks at his father and he's just not satisfied. This isn't the life he wants. Surely there's so much more out there to see and to do, to explore and taste and touch. And so he looks his dad dead in the eyes and effectively wishes him out of existence. Dad, I wish you were dead. Now, as a father of three young boys, this passage messes with me. To think that one day my boy might look at me, looking past the person, past the relationship, past what's on offer in what I would love to give him and see simply a dollar sign, an ATM, a means to get something else. It's unthinkable. It's unthinkable until I stop and think how much I treat God like this all the time. And so I see myself and the youngest son in this story. As we read, the son makes this jerk move. And if you've grown up with this Thomas Nagel view of God, merely as some distant authority imposing arbitrary laws, you'd probably expect the father in the story to go all Armageddon here, right? To get angry. Certainly the honor-shame culture in which this story was told, that was exactly the expectation of all of Jesus' first hearers. To the villagers, the father would be a laughingstock now. He'd become a cautionary tale unless he did the only sane thing in light of this familial mutiny. To disown and to exile his son. To send him packing with nothing and as a nobody. But it's here in the first few sentences of this story that Jesus starts chipping away at this cold and distant view of what God is really like. An offense has happened, yes, But rather than making the son pay for the offense, the father chooses to bear the cost. He's willing to embrace the scorn of the villagers, the shame of his son's words. And why does he do it? To leave open the possibility of return. And so we read, he gives the son the inheritance and he lets him leave. First the death wish, then scene two, life without God. Not many days later, the youngest son gathered all that he had, and he took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. When the youngest son left, it would have created a social nightmare. To put it bluntly, back in the time of Jesus, there was no first Jerusalem bank. Your savings aren't tied up in some Bitcoin account that can be liquidated easily. His dad was wealthy. He was a property owner. He had hired workers, which means the inheritance would have been tied up in land and in livestock. To liquidate those assets would have put servants out of their homes and pushed them into the unemployment line. It would have resulted in a downward turn in the local economy. You see, when we're tempted to think that what we do is our own business and that it doesn't affect anyone else, we're kidding ourselves. Our lives are a web of intricate relationships. 
And everything that we do, it ripples through every one of the lives of people that connects to us. No person, man or woman, is an island. And so alienating the entire village, it's no wonder that this younger son left in a hurry. And we're told that he sets off in search of adventure and experiences. Like so many 20-somethings in our culture, pre-COVID, of course, he went traveling to find some new exotic location to find himself, to forge a new identity, to experience life without God. And although it was fun for a time, it didn't play out how he'd hoped. Jesus, in telling this parable, speaks of the inheritance being squandered, being scattered, being wasted away. Different Bible translations in the English try to capture the how, a loose living to the ears of modern hearers, even to many of the Bible teachers. It has this long tradition of being interpreted as immorality. Think sex, drugs, rock and roll, Tinder and gambling. It's all out there in the open. And there's probably truth to this claim. Certainly the older son at the end of the story speaks of it being wasted on prostitutes. The Greek phrase in which this story was originally written, zon azotos, means a spendthrift living, to not pay attention, to be careless with what you have, indiscriminately sowing it and wasting it away. He wasn't giving attention to what he was pouring himself into. And it results in him being broke, empty. The Greek philosopher Aristotle describes a prodigal in these terms as a man who has a single evil quality, that of wasting his substance. One of the great American writers of the last century, David Foster Wallace, in 2005, as an atheist who began flirting with Christian ideas, having grown up in a secular home, to his last breath as well as I'm aware, before he sadly committed suicide by hanging himself. As far as I'm aware, he stayed an atheist. And yet in giving a graduation speech to students at Kenyon College, it's a record on the internet, you can go and watch it on YouTube. He gives this profound message. Let me quote, he says, because here's something else that's weird but true. That in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah or Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is because pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if that's where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. It's the truth. If you worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you end up feeling weak and afraid, always needing more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being thought of as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not just that they're evil or sinful, 
is that they become unconscious. They become default settings. Things we gradually slide into. Like in the story today, the things we don't pay attention to what we're pouring ourselves into. Now, as you hear this morning, I wonder, are you paying attention to what you are pouring yourself into? What have you given your life to pursuing? And what is it doing to the substance of who you are? Because you can build up a catalog of sinful experiences that excite for the moment, but will do nothing to satisfy your soul's deepest cravings. Because you were made for so much more. It was the 4th century theologian, Augustine of Hippo, a North African, who prayed in his book, Confessions. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. You see, some people have this belief that Christianity is all about anti-desire. It's about suppressing everything good in this life in order to gain a better afterlife. Now, thankfully, as is often the case, the truth is far more interesting than that. And in his infamous sermon, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis puts it masterfully. He said, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord, speaking of Jesus, finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are only half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. He closes with the words, we are far too easily pleased. Christianity is not anti-desire. It's simply anti-cheap substitutes to fulfill that deeper desire. And the Christian story, the gospel at its heart, is God's invitation not to dampen those hungers, but allow them to come fully awake, to lead us back to where they were always meant to point us, a deep and meaningful relationship with our Creator and Heavenly Father. But if, like the prodigal, we go and try and fill that hole with someone or something else, we only end up wasting away our substance, becoming a shadow of who we were created to be. Sometimes the worst thing God can do is give us what we want. And the younger son found himself flat broke all of a sudden in the midst of a famine. Now, consider how dreadful a famine is when there is no international community to drop in aid on C-17s, to send in the UN peacekeepers, to send in the Red Cross. In these scenarios, as the months have rolled on, it became so bleak that dead people would start lining the streets. And despite the darkness of this scenario, the younger son, he refused to go home. It says that he glues himself to a citizen, which is code word for a person of means. They're wealthy in this scenario. Now, most likely this citizen, this employer, didn't actually want him. Why? Because he gives him a job that a Jewish highborn male should absolutely refuse. It's the standard practice when an employer tries to get rid of an employee that they no longer want. Try and give them responsibilities you know that they'll hate in the hopes that they'll quit and leave. 
So he treats him terribly. He sends him into the field to feed pigs, an animal considered unclean, unedible, not really even in Jerusalem or anywhere in surrounds in Judea and beyond. He hoped the boy would leave, and yet the younger son stoops even lower. It says in the story that he desired to become as a pig, to feed himself with the pods that the pigs ate. He saw that their bellies were full and that his was empty. And he just wanted it to change. Notice how he doesn't actually consider coming home until every other possible avenue has been ended. And sometimes people do not come to God until they've already exhausted every other avenue for salvation, for satisfaction, to try and fix up their lives on their own, only to realize that all those other paths ultimately leave them empty. First, the death wish, then life without God, then scene three, false religion. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. First century customs from the literature we have that comes to us, the surviving rabbinic works and historians from the Jews, they have this custom that dictates that if a Jewish boy squandered his family's property and tried to return home. If he lost what they had to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, the outsiders, the others, then the community from which he come would smash a large pot in his presence. And they would cry out, so-and-so is cut off from their people. It was a ceremony that they called the kazaza, literally the cutting off. And after that, they would have nothing more to do with him. In other words, if he lost the money, he'd most likely burned any bridges that he had to be ever able to return home. And so as he starts that long journey back to his father, he concocts this face-saving plan. I've got to come back with a way to earn it. I invested in the wrong thing. I've lost all of what was given to me. I've got to come back with a way to earn it. But to pick up a trade... To be able to labor with his hands, he's going to need his father's approval. No one else in the town is going to give him a job. You see, the son didn't quite understand the dimensions of what he'd done. In his mind, he's still treating it as though the only thing that he's done wrong is squandering and losing the money. He thought it was about the material stuff when it was really about the relationship. And so many of us, when it comes to God and the Christian story, we make this terrible mistake of believing that God's love and God's acceptance and God's forgiveness is something that we can earn. We practice a false religion, some system of merits, of doing good deeds, of building up our religious duties so we can present it before God as our way through the front door. And on this long walk home, he rehearses a speech that to Jesus' listeners would have been recognized instantly. Because the second half of it, word for word, resembles Pharaoh's plea all the way back in the book of Exodus to Moses. In a time where Pharaoh repeatedly tried to manipulate God simply to bring an end to the suffering that he was enduring. 
without any real change of heart. He wasn't really repentant. And so Jesus' listeners would have recognized the same here. The son is just trying to manipulate the father to endorse his plan. He doesn't want grace, the free gift of love. Instead, he wants to restore his reputation. And I wonder if there isn't some play on words here with this word, arise. I will arise and go to my father. The Greek word anastasis, to stand up, to arise. The very word that's used of the resurrection of Jesus. To remake ourselves, to resurrect our identity. To be able to renovate our reputation. And he thought he could do that on his own terms. But from the death wish to life without God, to this false religion, to finally seen for the gospel. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But notice what he doesn't say. Notice where that speech that he rehearsed stops. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and bring a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's eat. Let's celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Let's just say that things in this story didn't play out as the son or any of Jesus's listeners were anticipating. Because what happens here is radically unorthodox from every perspective. Remember, the boy disgraced himself at the beginning by requesting the inheritance. He debased himself still further by selling it, dispossessing the people that depended on their family. What's more, now he's lost the inheritance, lost amongst the Gentiles. He probably expected his father to remain aloof in the house as he did that long walk of shame through the village to be subdued by the villagers, to be renounced when they'd learned that he had lost the money. The boy's only chance to sit at his family's gate, to be summoned by an angry father before whom he would plead and apologize, to be endorsed as a servant, a means by paying back the debt that he owes. That's precisely what so many people expect of God and religion. And yet Jesus tells us that God is nothing like that. The father wasn't aloof. He was watching on the horizon. He's waiting for a glimpse. And then stirred by compassion, this deep word depicting a movement of the deepest parts of our human being, a place of tender affections. Jesus tells us that the father runs. It's a technical term used for the foot races in the ancient stadia of the Greco-Roman world. And in Middle Eastern culture, a man of means, he walked slowly and with dignity, like the Queen of England at her jubilee. (laughs) He would not run. For to do so, he would have to lift the front edges of his robe to expose his legs. A humiliating posture, painfully shameful for a man of his stature. And yet, the father endures that shame again. He raced like an Olympian towards his son. Usain Bolt probably couldn't have beat him to the prize. And why does he do it? Why does he run to meet his son on the edge of the village? Perhaps 
so that none of the words of the villagers would injure him and make him walk away. The father wouldn't allow that here, to be turned away by the judgmentalism of those who have a religious frame of mind with no means of grace. And so he leaves the comforts and the dignity of his estate, and he embraces this shameful posture before the eyes of all the world in order to reconcile his lost son to himself. Now, it is impossible to capture, the more that you become familiar with the Christian story, it's impossible to capture in any single parable the mystery and the wonder of the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done for us, God in Christ. Yet in this matchless story, we have a clear indication, at least part of what that means. The father figure representing God in this story. When he leaves the house and takes upon himself this humiliating posture, he becomes the symbol of God incarnate, of Jesus leaving heaven only to face shame and scorn on earth, but willingly adopting that posture to seek and to save those who were lost. He doesn't wait for the prodigal to come to him. We cannot climb our way back to God. But rather, at great cost to himself, he comes down. And this costly demonstration of unexpected love in the village streets, it demonstrates the glory of the cross of Jesus Christ. And as the father runs, can imagine the whole village would have followed. So like at Calvary, where Jesus hung on a cross, what happens next is in full view of the whole world. It says, the father kisses his son. The Greek verb replies repeatedly, kind of like when I've come home from a long trip and missed my boys, catch them up in my arms. Don't want to let them go. He embraced them and he pulled them close. You can imagine the shock of the prodigal son, afraid of judgment from the villagers and his father, only to encounter a costly demonstration of the deep, moving love of his father. A love that was always there, only with eyes out the door. He never took the time to see it, to taste it, to embrace it back. And this part of the story is where the change really happens. It's where real repentance clicks in. Not in the face of a life that he screwed up, but encountering the presence of a loving father and being gripped now by grace. So here, overwhelmed by his father's love, he throws himself completely at the father's mercy. He starts the same speech, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But he abandons his false religion and his face-saving plan. He realized that his sin was not merely a wasted inheritance, but more the grieving of his father's heart. And if you're a newcomer to church this morning, if you're just acquainting yourself with the Christian story, this is what an encounter with the presence of God does. That when you see the depths of your sin, all that it has cost God in his grief and others in the ripple effects, and when you come to realize that God knows you to the very depths, warts and all, And yet knowing that darkness still loves you to the skies, it draws you to repentance. That's the thing that makes you change. 
In Romans 2.4, it says that it's the kindness of God. It's not his anger. It's not his judgment. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's in these moments you realize you cannot resurrect yourself. There's no way to undo the debt that we owe to justice. There's no way to smooth over all the damage that we've done. But in the gospel, it's all about what God has done to resurrect us. And so the father turns to the servants in the crowd, having suffered for the son, taking the son's shame into himself in full view of the world. He now resurrects this prodigal. He restores him from a dissipated, wasted life to full status within his family. He doesn't ask the son to clean himself up first. He doesn't make him work up a ladder of religious doings. No. He just turns to the servants and commands that they dress him in all the insignia of sonship, of honor, of rank, of status, a robe, a signet, and shoes. And after this resurrection, this moment of being added again to God's family, comes a party. There is much rejoicing in the presence of the angels, Jesus says, when one sinner repents. When a son or daughter who was lost is found. When a prodigal stumbles towards home only to be embraced by a loving Heavenly Father. If you're new to Christianity, this is what God is like. He's not the distant, cold, arbitrary judge. He's the creator who knit you together in your mother's womb, who wrote every one of your days in his book before anyone came to pass, who has loved you in eternity and brought you into being, who knows you to the very depths, hates what has become of the darkness in our hearts, but loves us to the skies and has done everything necessary to bring the shame that we deserve, the judgment that we deserve, the death that we deserve into himself to be able to pay for us and bring us back home into his family. Today, you can come home. Home to the only one that can satisfy you. Home to the one who's always loved you. Home to the one who knows what is best for you. And the gospel is that by his costly act of love at the cross of Calvary, you can have this free gift of grace. You can have not God's stuff, but him. To know the joy and love and presence of God himself. The one who can satisfy your deepest hungers and thirsts. There was a man once by the name of John Newton. He was a ship slave captain. He trafficked countless kidnapped Africans from their homes on the continent across the Atlantic to plantations and sugar fields in the Caribbean. Untold numbers of lives that he destroyed. And then overcome with the weight of all that he'd done to waste his substance, to make such a mess, to hurt so many people knowing where his life had ended up and feeling absolutely empty, he encountered this fatherly love. He encountered the good news of the Christian gospel. And he went on to pen some of the most iconic words based on the story that we've read here this morning. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see.
we once were lost. But our Heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ the Son, we can be found. And if you want to make that step here this morning, if you want to receive that free gift, and be clothed with all the insignia of honor, rank, and status in God's family, give up your faith-saving plan. and Come clean before a God who will embrace you and love you and hug you and kiss you. One who knows you better and will lead you into eternal life. Let's pray. God, our Father, you love us more than we could ever imagine. You're more beautiful than we can imagine. And we, as a people marked by that love, received that love. All of us with a story, all of us once as prodigals. We rejoice in the free gift that you give to us. Lord, for those here who have been far from you, who have known so little about you, who have run away from you, who have been wasting who they are, who have come here empty-handed this morning, would you meet them there? Would you reveal yourself to them? And in your love, would you transform their hearts as they come clean with you? Change them from the inside out. Even now, as we as God's people, those who have experienced this and need to hear it on repeat afresh, rejoice and celebrate. We once were lost, but now are found. And we're thankful, Lord, for those who join us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.